My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. We took a week off, but this week we had to take a break for this guy, Lino Miani. He is the president of CombatDiver.org, and he is a board member of GAC Global, the Hague Policy Group. He was first Special Forces Group. He's a combat diver, and he's kind of done a lot of stuff that I had never even heard of. So welcome to the show, Lino. Thanks, DJ. It's great to be here, man. So first off, uh, when we started talking, we realized that we were at the same unit at the same time before you got Hollywood and went over to Special Forces and everything. We were in the same uh, division at one time. So uh, best memory of the 25th, because to me, it's the best unit there is in the Army. So, Yeah, I, I got to tend to agree with you. You know, and um, I always attributed that to 25th ID being a little bit lower on the sort of deployability uh, at, at priority list. We never had as much money or resources. And so we just spent the time pounding the ground, man. I mean, that was a the, the men were hard. They were tough. The terrain was tough. The challenges in the you know, small infantry tactics world were, were pretty were pretty difficult. And uh, when you look across the force now, you see a lot of these guys, the leaders, have mm -hmm. 25th infantry time. Yep. Yeah. Uh, what I remember the most was what was what was great about it was not only the training, but also the schools that were available, because I think at that time they had like the best uh, RIP program in the Army. Uh, yep. They had an air assault school. You could get into dive school out there. They, I mean, they had a ton of stuff. And now I guess they have like jungle school and all yeah, kinds was, of stuff. I was just there. seeing that recently. They've got to, they've reopened the jungle training kind of curriculum down there. Yeah, um, I guess it's in East Range where it rains all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where yeah. it sucks the most over there. <laughs> where it sucks the most. Yeah. yeah. I always avoided that place. Yeah. So, um, it. it what I liked the most about it was because, you know, people would hear and they would say, oh, you're stationed in Hawaii. It must be a hard life. And I'm like, you have no idea what it's like to be out, in, you know, on training for 30 days. It sucked out there. I mean, yeah, no snakes. I was happy about that, that there were no snakes in Hawaii. There were the wild boars there that would be yes, like there were. through your rucksack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that, that all sounds nice and cuddly until you see a male boar like bearing down. on it. It's it's not fun. Yeah. You know, and I will tend to agree with people. Uh, Hawaii was not a bad duty station. My wife was yep. uh, stationed at Tripler. Uh, mm -hmm. I was over at Schofield. Um, and there was, I mean, there was a ton of stuff to do over there. Like if you, yeah. like anything you really wanted to do. Um, and the food I think is what I miss the most over there. Oh man. I'm not sure I want to talk about what I miss the most, but I was a young 20 something <laughs> single Lieutenant. And, uh, I just remember, not wanting to go to sleep. Yeah. I, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm really not entirely joking about that. I would take Mondays off cause I would just be so smoked. It was a, a blur of pound on the ground Monday to Friday coming out of the field, surfing literally twice a day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you know, if we had a four day, which we almost always did. Yeah, Aloha um, Friday. 
Yeah. And then, you know, and then I was out <laughs> partying in, a, in in downtown Hawaii or Honolulu um, until the wee hours of the morning. I'd sleep in my truck with my surfboard and, you know, sun comes up, I'd be in the water. Where was, uh, where was your favorite place to surf? Oh boy. That's a tough one. Um, I really liked a couple of places on the West side. There was one called tracks, which was near, um, uh, but a lot of people identify as electric beach. Okay. Um, just had a really fast little wave that nobody, nobody, very few people surfed on. So it was almost never crowded. It was shallow and it was fun pretty consistent and and i just like being out there the waves weren't always they weren't often very big um you know you get these head high waves which were a lot of fun to play on yeah uh, a lot of time in the water i think my favorite place i didn't surf a lot i dove a lot over there um (laughs) and i think my favorite place to dive was uh probably um man um holly eva trench yeah I, th- I think yep. that was probably my I've heard favorite. that's a pretty neat place. I've never dove it. It's uh so you can you can kind of go up to the edge and stand on it and it almost like you're standing on a cliff and then you just fall down into the inside of it and it's almost like you're falling down it. It's very cool. Lots of turtles down there and stuff like that. Yep. So the the it's the tough. problem with Hawaii diving is there if you get in like I thought Waikiki would be good, but it's not cuz it's so sandy and it kicks up so much and yep. It's just yeah. not a good place. But if you go out to like Diamond Head or Turtle Bay or, you know, somewhere kind of out there, then you get a lot better diving, better night dives and stuff like that. So, and then of course, going to dive school over there, I got to dive all over Pearl Harbor. So fun fact, I never dove until I went to, to combat dive. Is that right? Ish course. Yep. Never did it. So, so let me ask you real quick and, and we'll get back on track, but I got to ask this, if you had never wow. dove before, and you went to dive school when you got to pool week or whatever they called it in the school that you went to, how did you handle that with getting hit? And, um, I think by the time you get to that, I mean, you've done all the pool events. It's, it's not, I don't know. I I didn't, it, it wasn't something that I felt I needed experience for. Um, I was good in the water. I was good swimmer. It was, I knew how to, how to relax. Uh, to conserve oxygen. And so by the time you get through those individual pool events um, and you get to the point where you're actually, you know, sucking on scuba gear, uh, it, it really wasn't much of an issue. Yeah. The way they, they taught us everything we needed, I guess. Yeah. They called it uh, underwater problem solving when I went there. And so, they, <laughs> yeah, I seem to remember that. <laughs> yeah. So they would start us out in pairs. Uh, you would swim around, they would, kind of hit both of you shark both of you but they would focus on one of the group and then the other one would kind of be the the air guy because the other guy's tanks were tied up or whatever it was and then you would go around when you were done with that you would go around on singles and i remember i went through this one time we got hit and i was with a marine uh was my like scuba buddy that day and uh he gets hit and and he finds his air and he just starts sucking on it and i'm working on my tanks and i'm I'm giving him the symbol like, hey, uh, hey, I'm out of air. And he's just staring at me, just sucking on air and blowing. I was like, you son of a bitch. See, I uh, had the opposite experience. It, it, at Key West, they call that the two-man comp. And you're right. They start both of you on scuba gear, and you're supposed to just swim back and forth yep. along the line. And then, you know, one of you loses your tanks is, is the scenario. And you kind of have to, to work through getting hit and 
and having obstacles uh, together as a team. And I had a 19-year-old Air Force uh, airman, an E-1 or an E-2, who was my, my partner that day. And he had just failed that same event with a different partner. So they recycled him over to me, and I was like, oh, great, man, I got this kid. 19-year-old kid, just failed. You know, I'm not sure how he's going to handle this, and I could get screwed as a result. But he was an absolute hero. The dude was like giving me the, the regulator, like, here, you take it. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'll breathe. <laughs> and usually that doesn't happen. Usually they're so wound up from that first one that when they get going on yeah. the second one, it's just chaos underwater. So that, that worked yeah. out well for you then. Yeah, he was, he was quite the hero. I was impressed with that kid after that. So, Lino, let's go over your career a little bit. We, sure. We've talked about that, but you started out at West Point. Um, yep. I know that both your parents were military. Yep. Was this a goal your whole life? I mean, because you talk to some of these guys, and they're like, yeah, that, that's all I wanted to do my whole life. I just wanted to be in the military. I wanted to be special forces. I wanted to do this. Was this what you had in mind? Um, it was probably less uh, melodramatic. I just kind of assumed I'd end up in the military. It was a family business in a way. Um, mom and dad were both, you know, uh, enlisted Air, Air Force. And then, you know, my father got commissioned when I was a kid. But um, all my aunts and uncles were either in the military or civilians working for the military. I spent my entire life growing up on Air Force bases. So it's kind of like it just seemed like the thing to do. Right. You know. Um, and so I don't think I get to the point where I was, um, sort of pursuing a dream until probably when I started thinking that I needed to go to West Point and at, at, at 16 years old or 15 years old, however old I was, you know, you, you put West Point on a pedestal and the standards are really high to get in. And, and, you know, I was a good student, but not a great one. Um, a pattern that continued through my university years, by the way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I was a good student, you know, I made the honor roll, but you know, I wasn't like a straight A guy. Um, and so I, I just remember thinking like, man, I don't even know if I'm going to, I'm going to be able to get into this thing. And if I do, I'm going to be clawing my way to stay in to graduate. That, that was my thinking completely based on nothing. Um, but it turned out, you know, I was, it was, it wasn't quite that difficult. And, um, yeah, it, it was a fun time. I mean, anytime you're in a, in a circumstance with a thousand people of your same age and you're kind of all working towards the same eventual goal, you really make lasting relationships and it's a lot of fun. I mean, anybody who's been in the military has kind of experienced that at some point. So when you're there, is it from the inside, is it a, is it a cutthroat? Cause I feel like it would be more cutthroat than a normal college and, and not necessarily in the sense that not necessarily in the sense that people are going to try and make you fail, but I feel like they might not help you along the way as much because everyone's trying to compete there. I would say just, I would say kind of the opposite. Okay. Everybody's trying to work together to get to the end of that, that tunnel. Um, you're, the, the ranking system and it's there's three parts to it there's your academic military and your physical rank and so they have all these events throughout your four years that you know are going to 
you're going to get scored on and you're going to end up with a, with a rank, a, a very definitive system that they have for measuring everybody. And so you don't really have to compete against, you know, I wouldn't have to compete against you in order to have my class rank go up. I've just, I'd, I would just have to do better on my tests. I'd have to run faster. I'd have to, you know, do better in my military ranking right. evaluations or whatever. And I'd have to do better in school. Um, so there wasn't this this sense of kind of competing with one another very much at all, to be to be honest. Um, you were competing against the big gray machine, really. Uh, and that's neat. That, that was something that, you know, kind of disappeared once you, as we, I moved up the ranks, the officer ranks in the Army. It started to become a competitive thing. It wasn't like that at West Point. And so let's talk about that for a minute. So as you leave there and you're used to, you know, just being the big gray machine, um, how do you look at it when it starts being cutthroat uh, moving up through the ranks? For me, it was a bit of a trauma, to be honest. And I didn't really, I didn't really sense it until I was a major. Uh, you know, and maybe that I mean, was, that, you've been around for a while if you're a major before oh, you realize it. Yeah. I think when you're a, when you're a, a lieutenant in a, a line battalion like I was in the infantry, um, there's still that sense of camaraderie, and there's a little bit less of the uh, competition against one another at that level. Um, that doesn't really manifest until you start moving up a little bit higher in the chain. And, and in SF, you know, I went from the infantry straight into SF training. You're in a school environment, and, and that's not really you know so cutthroat you know again you're not you're competing against the machine not each other in, in a course then you get to the unit and you're kind of focused on your little piece of the pie and in my case it was my oda or, or the odas that i uh, commanded and you don't really or at least i didn't and maybe this is my na naivete i didn't really get that sense of hey we're competing against each other okay. kind of knew intellectually that was happening but it wasn't so nasty when I became a major and I came back to the unit for a second time, that's when I really kind of realized it. A bit too late for, for my own good, frankly, but that's all right. And so what are some of the things that you're seeing where this is making it kind of apparent to you? What are you seeing differently the second time you come back? Um, officers bad-mouthing each other to commanders. Okay. Yeah, that's just something that I just didn't really see when I was a young captain or a lieutenant. As a major, that that became a little bit more apparent. Um, and, you know, not having worked in a corporate environment in a civilian world, I've been a government guy several in a couple different ways, but I imagine it's similar in the corporate world. You know, you're trying to climb a ladder, it's a rat race or whatever, and, you know, um, so I, I, I don't know that it's unique to the military. But uh, it was news to me, actually, as when I came back as a major. And part of that was too. I was sort of disconnected. And this is this is a little bit uh, a bit about my career that's maybe interesting to some. Is that after my team time, uh, I, and when I left the unit, I left to go on a scholarship. Uh, that it's the Olmstead Foundation scholarship, and it, it's a it's a private foundation that spends money to send U.S. military officers to grad school outside the United States and outside the Western sort of, or at least the U S English speaking cultural context. So I went to grad school in Malaysia 
and in, in Malaysia, I was immersed in the embassy environment. I was immersed in an academic environment, which was completely different than, you know, the U.S. kind of conception of academia. Um, culturally immersed in a, in a completely different society. So coming back to the military at that point, I, I, it was... Um, it was like the, the, the military had changed, but I had, I was still kind of viewing everything as a, as a captain that had left a, uh, an SF battalion three years earlier or four years earlier, actually. So I'm, I'm guessing, and, and the way I'm looking at it is, are you getting any flack from people that are going, you know, we've been here pounding the ground and you've been fucking whipping yeah. a pencil in school. Who the fuck are you yeah. to come back here? And yeah. Absolutely. Got a lot of that. And uh, most of it came from from people above me, actually. We're like, all right, you've been fucking off for three years or four years or whatever now. Now it's time to pay your dues. But you and I was had, like, I mean, <laughs> technically like, you had already paid your dues. You, you led ODAs and everything. So, yeah, it's just, um, you know, it's like one commander said, look, uh, if you want to be in the SF regiment, stay in the SF regiment. And there's, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. And um, I was actually told that before I left, frankly. I didn't really believe it, I guess. I didn't get the memo, so to speak. Um, because, you know, and, and it was an idealistic view on my part, looking back on it. Uh, you know, we going through the Q course and being recruited into SF, we were told and, and led to believe and trained in a way that, that you know, culture, language, knowing your, your, your context you're going to be operating in is very important to accomplishing the mission. Um, and it is, and, and the unit does, the regiment does value it, but frankly, they, they, they value, you know, being in the slog in the regiment more. And so when I was out of it, even though I came back with some, some really, um, probably valuable insights, uh, you know, I've been out of it, been out of it for a while. And on that note, when mm-hmm. you talk about that, because I think at that time the army was kind of transitioning because I'm figuring that was probably 2001, 2002 for you. No, it was much later. So uh, I got to the team in 2003. Okay. Uh, correction. Got to the unit in 2003. The team I got to in early 04. So 03 or 04. Get, God, I'm getting old, man. Um, in any case, I didn't get to Malaysia until 06. Okay. Late 06. At, at that time, there, if I'm remembering, as like 01, 02, before the war on terror and everything, the Army started really pushing for their field grade officers and their um, senior non-commissioned officers to be very educated. I think at one point they were saying if you wanted to be like a SAR major, you needed to have a bachelor's degree or maybe even a master's degree. I'm not sure, but they were really pushing for education. And it kind of seems like a real dichotomy with the way that you're expressing it too, is that they want these guys educated and worldly and all these things. But when they go to do it, then they tell them, well, you should have been here the whole time doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was a complaint that, that, a lot of us had about a lot of things. For example, just you know, being language proficient, especially in first special forces group, where there were fourteen languages associated with our our unit in that region of the world. 
Um, and it was just very, most of them were very difficult languages too, by the way. So it took a long time, a training investment of, of years and a lot of money to get a guy to a certain level of proficiency um, in his target language. And it was, you know, it was all great for the leadership to say, you know, languages are important, but at, at the end of the day, they were almost, they were only as important as you had time for, um, from other things that were actually more important. So it, it, there's a balance and I'm not saying this to be critical of the regiment or even first special forces group. It, it was sort of a reality of, of things. And it's, I'm glad that I was in a unit, uh, that, at least recognize the value of knowing your region, being an expert, having some, some cultural and language proficiency. Um, but at the same time, it was always a little bit disappointing for those of us who really valued it um, to see how much effort the unit was willing to put forward to, to achieve it. So it, it's, it's a bureaucratic reality, DJ. It just uh, that's the way it is. Yeah. It's much easier in units like Seven Special Forces Group, which you know they have Spanish and Spanish and a little bit of Portuguese, which is very similar. So you can get proficient in, in a language uh, like that, and that unit can operate um, much more effectively in terms of language than First Group could. Let's talk about that for a minute because I think you were supposed to be with Seven Special Forces in the beginning. You spoke Spanish, <laughs> but you. I won't say flirted, but you definitely raised the <laughs> desires of someone who was uh, very helpful in the assignment to first special forces. Yeah, that's kind of a funny story. So, I mean, I, um, yeah, I just, uh, I wanted to go to first group. I didn't have a first group target language or, or anything close to it. I had Spanish and I was scoring a three, three uh, well before, or excuse me, like a two plus two plus well before I got to, SF. Um, so when I got to the to the course, uh, somebody and it, it was Steve Johnson who was later battalion commander in the first group. He was the branch guy. And he he said, "Lino, you're going to seventh group because you speak Spanish. Congrats!" And I was like, for for reasons I won't get into, I was like, "Man, seventh is not what I w wanted to do." Even though I had Spanish language, um, I wanted to go to first group, and uh, yeah, I ended up kind of. Spending a little bit of time and attention on the uh, the lady in comfortable shoes that writes the list of you know who gets orders to wear in in the headquarters. And it was an older lady, and I, I used to bring her popcorn and tell her her shoes look nice and all that. And she she uh, she advised <laughs> oh, me. Oh, the take... simpler times when popcorn yeah. and you look nice worked. <laughs> well, it took three weeks. Which, you know, <laughs> lady, was, I don't have one day here. Time. Yeah, I was like, you know, come on, can we get to the thing where you give me the orders first group? Um, but she told me to go take the Japanese test because I thought I could maybe score something on that um, from, you know, time in Hawaii and knowing some Japanese girls. I spent four um, years in Hawaii. I don't know a yeah. lick of Japanese. Yeah, I, I didn't either. I thought I did, but yeah, I didn't. So I took the test, got a zero zero, and she like put Japanese next to my name and that was it. I was yeah. off the first group. Yeah, you got thrown out of someone's office for that. Yeah, well, when you show up at, at, at first special force group and the colonel says, what language do you speak? And you look him dead in the eye and you say, sir, I speak fucking Spanish. <laughs> he kicked me right out of his office on the first day, which wasn't a great start. But Well, let's get into kind of your career. Now, what's interesting to me about your career is not only have you done these things, but you've, you've written about them. 
you you've kind of uh kind of blogged your career i think um in looking through all the stuff that you wrote about uh special things and and i picked a couple of the stories that i wanted to talk about just because i think that they had an effect on not only your career but kind of the 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 shape that your life took and and the directions that you went in and the the first one i wanted to talk about is diving with ivan and Mm -hmm. um I want you to set up this story because if you just read the story, it's it's very much split down the middle and it's two different stories going on at the exact same time. And you don't really figure that out until close to the end of the story. Um, so let's talk about that. I want to talk about your buddy, Mike, uh, what he was doing, what he meant to you, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. So the story is really about uh, Mike Tarlowski and it's not, that's not really apparent until the end, but um, Mike and I were lieutenants together in two five infantry in Hawaii. And Mike was one of those guys that, uh, you know, he was more alive than, than the rest of us. He, he, he probably, you know, he, he was late twenties and he probably lived <laughs> as much as 60 years of life. I mean, he, he was constantly going, he was never at rest. He was always doing interesting stuff and he just had an amazing, uh, well of energy and um he's a great leader and i say that without any sense of irony whatsoever he was a great leader um and 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 um a good friend so i learned a lot from mike uh, as an officer and as an infantryman and he went sf and he was in first uh, excuse me fifth group he was a combat diver in a brief period of time that he was in fifth group before deploying to Afghanistan or actually between Afghanistan and 2001, actually. And then, um, Iraq in 2003, uh, he had gone to dive school. So combat diver, green beret, um, and a great, great leader. And he was a troop commander in the sinks and extremist force in this special forces group in 2004. And at the time, uh, if I could stop was, you real quick, and the only reason I want to stop you is, can you explain to the people that might not know what that extremist group is? Because there's hmm. there's different levels, and I don't think a lot of people know what that extremist group is. Yeah, it's a, there's a company reserved, or at least there used to be a company reserved in each uh, regionally oriented special forces group. Uh, there's a company that, that kind of specializes in urban warfare um, and close quarters battle. And then that was the unit that Mike was in. So they're all specially trained. There's a school that they go to and, and um, you know, they, they operate at a very, very high level of proficiency. And so what's, uh, what's valuable about those companies specifically is that the theater commanders have um, operational control of them and can apply them in an extreme situation to uh, apply force anywhere in their region. And in this particular case, uh, Mike was operating in southern Iraq, and I believe it was in Basra. Uh, and at the time, the United States was fighting uh, the Mahdi Army, uh, al-Sadr's boys. And this is a political faction within the Iraqi political sphere and, and, you know, arguably described as a militia. And they were on the wrong side of the United States, so we were uh, attacking them. And the, the, the SIF was, you know, instrumental in that. So it was, it was, it was heavy, intense urban combat, pretty up close and personal. And, uh, they chased some guys into a house and I'm, you know, recounting this story secondhand, but you know, they followed some, some guys they were chasing into a house and, um, entered the house and assaulted it 
then there was, you know, from the, from the door, there was a stairway leading up directly in front of the door. And, uh, one of the, one of the enemy had posted up a, a strong position at the top of the stairs and was throwing grenades and, 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 um, sending direct fire down on the doorway. Makes sense. And, uh, the, the, the first man through the door, um, was injured by a grenade that had come down. Mike was the second man. So when the first man went down, Mike was standing there assaulting through the doorway and uh, got shot in the face. I mean, he was right there between the eyes. AK-47, that was it. Mike, you know, my friend and in a way, my, my mentor, a young father, you know, Joey was a year and a half at the time, combat diver, Green Beret, well-regarded, uh, in 5th Special Forces Group, uh, died instantly. And it's not very often you, you see a young captain in a Special Forces unit have quite the emotional impact on that unit that Mike Tarlovsky had on 5th Special Forces Group. Uh, and as a result, and I, I discovered this years later, talking to folks about this, um, you know, the Army, Special Ops in general, changed the way they dealt with stairs. As a result, so they changed the tactics by learning from what happened to Mike. It, you know, and that's a sort of a hard truth to deal with for us because you're kind of like, well, man, if we had if we had practiced more, if we had thought about that, or if we had prepared ourselves in a certain way, maybe we'd have taken those stairs differently, and maybe Mike would be alive today. You know, you don't really dwell on it; it is what it is. But um, yeah, it was a bit of a sad story. Um, but you mentioned two stories going on at once. Right. I, the, the second story to that was me going through dive school and kind of, um, having that experience at the same time that, that Mike was killed in action. And so it was actually the weekend before I reported to Key West a couple of days prior, actually, that I got the call that, you know, Mike did killed in action. And I made the decision to go ahead and go to dive school because I had that slot and I was going to go. Um, and I knew I was going to miss his funeral. His funeral was at Arlington during the first week of my course. And, you know, I thought about that and it wasn't easy for me to be sitting there in the barracks that night. Um, my brother and sister went and they called me and told me about it. Uh, but I also knew that Mike Tarlowski would have been really really pissed off if I had left dive school to go to his funeral. That's, you know, it's just, you just don't do that. So I stayed there and I tried to honor him as best I could. And one of the ways I did that was to find his class plaque on the wall. And now for those of you who don't or aren't familiar, every class at the dive school, at least at Key West, um, going back to the beginning, which is sometime in the early to mid sixties, has made a class plaque and the vast majority of them have pictures of all the guys that went to the course on the plaque. And this is a really unique historical resource, right? This is a small niche group of, of people within a small niche group of special operators that have collected these memories and put them on the walls in, in this facility down in Key West. And so um, at the, well, Years later, when I was a company commander, I went down to um, observe some training at the schoolhouse there. It was the last time I'd been back. 
and I went on this journey of discovery to find my plaque and some of the other folks that I knew. Um, and I realized those plaques were in bad shape and they just, and I, and I tell this story a lot because it's, it's the reason that I, I started the combat diver foundation was initially to preserve that artifact, those class plaques, because nobody was doing it. Now this was 2010. Um, and this is not to point fingers at anybody. It, it you know, maintaining and, and, and restoring a historical artifact requires money. It requires time and a mandate, you know, the cadre down at the school don't have that. So the plaques were protected by the cadre sort of, you know, out of, out of respect for, for all of us that had gone to the school and, and just knowing the, the inherent value of these things, but they weren't historical artifacts in any official way. They weren't even official property. In fact, they were just, uh, Officially, they were junk. And so you're one commander decision away from someone saying, look, I can't, I don't have room for these things. And they're, you know, they're taking up space and we got to get rid of them, throw them in the trash or take them home or whatever. Um, and that's sort of a, you know, an, an unfortunate, but it would have been an understandable decision at some point because those plaques were, you know, 40 years of class plaques was starting to accumulate. And, um, so I had it in my mind that something must be done. You know, that phrase, something must, somebody has to do something. Well, that right. somebody was me. So I started, you know, years later, I started calling and, and, and sending emails and sort of advocating for the preservation of these things. And I think I pissed off enough people that somebody said, well, we, we should probably do something. And instead of just making them a uh, unit property, they made them a, an army historical artifact. So that's great news, right? You know, those things are, <laughs> those things are, they're, uh, you know, they're going to be protected for, gosh, who knows, decades, centuries um, by the uh, by the Center for Military History that runs the Army Museum system. So it's good news. Bad news was um, when I had when I discovered this, I'd already founded the Combat Diver Foundation. And as I mentioned to you, our initial mandate was to, to preserve the plaques or help the Army preserve the plaques. Um, we weren't able to do it. Those plaques are historical artifacts and allowing a, a private organization to get their hands on them is, is a really um, difficult bureaucratic kind of tangle. So you kind of ended up shooting yourself in the foot, kind of. In a way. I mean, I accomplished the mission in a, in a, in a certain sense. Now, right. Swick really, Swick doesn't have the money either. Right. Um, to be frank. And there was a lot of drama with the Special Warfare Museum, which is the owner of those artifacts um, last year. That's been partially resolved, um, but it's not clear yet, you know, what um, what money or what people they have to prioritize to, to actually preserve those plaques. It's an expensive and, and uh, delicate process. So right. it's, a, it's a long-term thing. Now, we're positioned to help if and when we can. Uh, but we've also expanded the mission of the Combat Diver Foundation out beyond this one class of artifacts into preserving the history of the combat dive community writ large. And so that includes the entire joint force. You know, the Marines are involved, the Air Force guys, the Navy SEALs. Um, it, it, it also involves the Allies. You know, the Combat Diver Foundation has members in six countries and growing. Right. Um, yeah, and, and, and we like it that way because, I mean, you can't, you really can't make an argument that, you know, the Royal Marines aren't combat divers. And so I, why, why not preserve their history too? 
I think the most interesting thing about the Combat Diver Foundation is that um, you took an approach to it that seems would seem odd to people looking in on it for the first time. Uh, mm -hmm. You took people that weren't combat divers and put them mm -hmm. in positions of power in the unit in order to run it like a business so that it stayed focused on mission, stayed focused on what needs to be done. And that was super interesting to me because you're bringing in, I mean, it, it goes against everything. It's almost counterintuitive. You're bringing in people that have no idea of the, the love that goes into it or, you know, the emotion that goes with it, but they're making it carry forward way further than probably someone with just emotion could do for it because they're looking at it from a money standpoint, a business view, and to yep. mesh those two worlds together really makes it a powerful organization. Yeah. And it's a, you, you actually characterize it really well there, DJs. We're, we're running an organization, man. It's not a good old boys club for, for combat divers. Now there is an aspect of that. Of you course. Know, we're about to have our reunion here in, in, um, in August and we're going to, you know, we're going to shake the combat diver fist and, and, you know, beat our chest and tell a bunch of cool stories and make ourselves sound cool. But the reality is we're running an organization and I got to make that organization function effectively. Um, and I think if we were to succumb to the good old boy club system, we would actually be less effective. So it's important to me that Steve Kane, the executive vice president is not a combat diver. That said, you know, Steve's a Green Beret, uh, and a, he's a he's a retired 06 and, and operated at a very high level. So he's, he's savvy about how large organizations work and how the military makes decisions about certain things. Um, and that's what I valued in him. And, and um, you know, he and I worked together uh, at NATO. And so I trust him because we had a re working relationship uh, prior to. And so it's, uh, it you know, Steve's uh, an invaluable member of the team. He's not a combat diver. Um, and just about everybody on the staff is either a combat diver or SF connected. So our store manager, you know, her husband's a Green Beret. She's a retired NCO. Um, you know, the lawyer's a combat diver. Um, I think only the accountant has no no connection. <laughs> well, that's, but he's the accountant, so it's all right. He's the accountant, so that's probably, yeah. you know, good <laughs> that he knows how to do the math. But we did, uh, we do recognize that we have to at least have um, we do need to maintain that connection. And so for that reason and others, uh, I established the board of advisors and we've got uh, several advisors, which have, um, in some cases, some specific sort of outreach kind of responsibilities In others, it's more general, but they're all combat divers. And that's a requirement to be, uh, on the board of advisors. And their job is really to connect to the combat diver community and, and help us, you know, understand how, how the uh, community is thinking and feeling about what we're doing and, and making sure that we're on the right track. And so with this every, I don't think you had one last year just because of COVID, but this deep dive, the reunions, um, mm -hmm. what's going to be the main goal of those to bring those guys together? Of course, like you said, it's not only to shake your fists and, and talk stories. There's a, there's a very good meaning behind it. So if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, we, um, we've got a couple of parts of the event. So there's a 5K on the beach. There's a charity dive. Um, and there's, you know, there's the, the party and the raffle and the auction and music demonstration, static display, all these things that we're trying to put together. Um, 
but the five K in particular is is um, is a is an important event for us. One, it's the first time we've done five K, but two, we decided early on that we would make it a memorial event. So the five K specifically is a memorial uh, to honor the memory of. Um, John Worka, warrant officer from 7th Special Forces Group, who, and I'm going to use a phrase that my future, um, our future intern gave me. Uh, she's a social media professional, and she was like, gosh, it's, it's hard to imagine that a guy like John Worka, a Green Beret and a combat diver, who had overcome so many obstacles and fought so many battles in his life, and the one that he ended up losing was the one with mental health. And it's a story that affects so many uh, veterans and, and, frankly, active servicemen nowadays. And that's, uh, you know, we're all we're hearing that there's, you know, the force has been been deployed over and over and over again. You hear about these guys with 11 tours and, and you know, seven tours. And, and, you know, when you're home, you're not really home because you're training, prepping for the next one or going to a school or whatever. And it, it, it you know, guys break. Hard men break. And Absolutely. Um, and it happens. And they need, you know, we need to recognize that. And we as a force need to deal with it. And I think the military takes it uh, seriously and is increasingly so, you know, from the time when I was on a team. We didn't hear much about, you know, soldier mental health. But now it's a serious, uh, it's a serious consideration for commanders and, and, and um, you know, senior enlisted leaders to think about. Um, so we're, we're, we're coming into this at the right time. I think, I think the force and the, the American public has been made aware that there is a problem. That there's a problem. Guys like, you know, John Worka, who fought those battles, um, you know, it, it's, it's an avoidable um, tragedy, potentially. I, I so how absolutely. do we do that? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I've, yeah. I've talked to lots of guys on this show that um, they talk about that. I talked to Tom Satterley, who was very close to taking his own life. Um, yep. uh, Tom has supported us in the past. So, yeah, we're yeah. Tom's yeah. a hero. You know, uh, but I talked to these guys. I talked to Mark Bayless a couple of weeks ago and he has set up the mm -hmm. Valor Clinic. Mm -hmm. And so what he does is take guys that not only have maybe mental health issues, but are homeless and uh, gets them in housing, gets them work. And the amazing thing about his organization was um, they have like a, I, I think it was only like five people out of all the people they've helped have had mm -hmm. recidivism and gone back That's into amazing. being home. Yeah. I mean, it's, but, he, but he says, just like you, we have to approach it from a different angle. Um, we can't look at it anymore as these guys are hard. We don't need to worry about them. I mean, Tom mm -hmm. says all the time, check on your, your strongest friends because those are the ones that are, and you hear it time and time and time again. The only thing I would disagree with you about what you said is that mm -hmm. I don't think that it's been taken by the military or by the DOD or by veterans affairs seriously until recently. Yeah. And and it's almost fair. like they've forced their hand to take it seriously. Yeah. It takes a lot to make that big machine move. Right. Um, good thing is I think it's moving in the right direction. Um, we're going to hopefully give it a little bit of a push here with the deep dive uh, in 2021. And we're going to do that talking about, uh, you know, John Worka and his struggle. Um, this was, this was not a guy that, that, you know, we could look at and say, well, you know, he just, he was, 
he was just not he, he wasn't an accomplished person he wasn't you know we can't say that about john Worka. guy was a combat diver for god's sake he was a, a leader for in in seven special forces group you know um so we can't just write this off in some other way it's got to be you know when we're hoping to to bring some awareness to the mental health um issues that soldiers and servicemen face uh, soldiers and veterans face uh, because it is real it, it, it it's very much so um real quick and we'll come back to it at the end but i, I do want to point out that with this deep dive you have of course the 5k there's a dive for qualified divers that can mess around um on that there's a charity raffle, there's a charity auction, live music, lots of drinking uh, at the Floribama Lounge. I guess that's the largest bar in uh, Perdido it's, Key. It's No, it's the largest beach bar in Florida. Oh, okay. Well, and my it's owned mistake. By, yeah, and it's owned by a guy who I was uh, who was in 25th with me. We were lieutenants together in, in 2-5 Infantry, Cameron Price. He's a combat diver also and got, um, you know. And so when I first conceived of this event, I called Cam and I said, Cam, what do I do, man? I got this event and I don't know where to have it. I don't have any money. And he's like, I ah, just have it at my bar. I got this little place on the beach. It's called the Floribama. He's the owner of the Floribama, one of them. Um, and so it has, the Floribama has become the home of uh, the, the deep dive. And last year, you know, we didn't, we did it virtually because of COVID. Um, but this year we're back live. And so we're going to do the 5k. It's for a great cause. You can join um, if you join uh, if you register for the event. You're also going to get automatically registered to participate in the auction, um, so you can win some amazing prizes. You'll get a free raffle ticket, uh, free food on the uh, on the floor of Bama, and then uh, the dive is a little different animal. So it's a charity dive, and we're going to auction off the seats on the boat. Okay. And so it's for donors, and so we're going to have a couple of combat divers. And they're going to do a ceremony under the water and we'll take some pictures and make some memories. And, um, you know, we're kind of going to aim that at the donors. Um, but it's all for a good cause. Um, and, you know, with the 5K in particular, well, in the auction as well, you can do it from anywhere. You don't have to actually come down to the floor of Bama to participate. So there's a virtual 5K option, um, which my understanding, you know, if you have a uh, like an Apple Watch or some sort of input device where you can log your miles, you can do run the race. Yeah. Yeah, you can upload your results and you can participate in uh, the Deep Dive Memorial 5K uh, from anywhere in the world. So we're really hoping that people get excited about it, uh, that want to raise awareness about, you know, servicemen and veteran, veteran mental health. Uh, tip a glass to John Work, uh, join, the, join the run with us and, and, you know, maybe bid on some of the awesome prizes we're going to have. Real quickly, too, there's also some sponsorships. Uh there's a title sponsorship that's uh, that's going to be ten grand to do, but you are the mm -hmm. title sponsor of it. The platinum package mm -hmm. is fifteen hundred, the silver package is five hundred, bronze is two fifty, and then you can do in kind. Now, if you'll explain to them a little bit what the in kind sponsorship is, because I thought that was a pretty interesting one to put on there. Yeah, so the in kind sponsorship. So we get a lot of companies and, and individuals that want to donate uh, prizes either to the raffle or the auction. Um, and some of those things are, are, are quite valuable. So we just got a, a verbal pledge the other day from a company, which I, I won't mention tonight, um, but you'll see them soon on the website. Uh, they have a they have a they have pledged a, a prize to us, which is probably valued somewhere in the thousand dollar range. Um, 
but has in the past auctioned for $18,000. So just in order to recognize that kind of a contribution, you know, they will get a probably a, a platinum or a gold sponsorship level. And it comes with, you know, different levels of ag- advertising focus, access to certain parts, uh, you know, to, of the event, tickets to the auction, for example, and, and, and um, discounts on vendor booths. So we're going to have direct sales there also. So there's lots of opportunities for companies out there that want to support a good cause, but also want to, you know, benefit from being associated with um, a very uh, interesting part of the special ops community. There's opportunities for those companies to, to, to get a, it's a win-win situation for them. Well, if you don't mind, I would like to go back into your career a little bit. Yeah. We we got off on the combat and I want to I want to focus on that again at the end because I want to make okay. sure that people know what they can do to help out. So you had another story that you wrote about and you called it gin and tonic. Um <laughs> now <laughs> This one a involves a female named Delilah. I I guess that's what they call her Delilah. I don't remember what I called her in the in the the blog. I'd have to go back and review I, it. I, I changed all the names to protect the guilty. So, so <laughs> it involves, and, and this is one of those stories again, that I read on your blog and you don't quite understand what's going on at first. Like it, it almost seemed like the opening to a spy novel, the beginning of this blog, because there's this woman that comes up to you. She's trying to flirt with you. Um, and no one really reading the article understands why she's flirting with you. She's trying to get you to help her out in this master's program that you're in. Yep. You point out that uh, operationally you have been approached by way harder women than her and you're not falling for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only mention that. And, and the only reason I mentioned this guy is because he'll be mentioned later on in the story. Her boyfriend is in the room watching this entire scenario take place. Now, yeah. everybody needs to keep in mind that you are in the master's program, but you're in Malaysia in the master's program. Um, and so you're in a completely fish out of water situation uh, because this is not your pond. You're just there doing this school. And so if you can tell the story, it it got crazy to me. And I, I couldn't believe that this stuff was going on. And and I really want to focus on the plagiarism and the educational levels that you talk about in there, because that yeah. was the best part of the article to me. Yeah. You know, so when I write these, I don't want to write about me. I don't want to write about, hey, no shit there I was. I mean, there's an aspect of that because I'm telling a story. But I want to write about the places that I am and the people that we encounter um, and the, the situations that um, – that that make the world interesting and in malaysia i want to take you back to 2007 when this story was you know took place in in 2007 the united states was uh george bush was president we were hot and heavy in the war on terror um and malaysia is a a a sort of uh uncomfortable muslim nation and what, what i mean by that is Malaysia is a multicultural kind of construct, and it has been since way back in its history. And in order to make it work as a, uh, a peaceful democracy, they've had, to, um, they've had to very carefully define their society based on race, religion, and culture. Okay? 
And so uh, they're very protective of a Muslim identity because the, the Muslims politically are the largest group. Um, they are the ones with the political power um, by, by design. So they, they emerged from a sort of colonial context and as a, as a Muslim led political, politically led, politically Muslim led kind of place. It's a wonderful country. It's a great place, but they're very focused on that. Um, and so religion takes on a, a daily sort of, um, sensitivity and, um, so, so there I was, and, I, and, and Malaysia also is a place where the British Commonwealth uh, existed and still exists for, for a long period of time. I mean, it was a bastion in the East uh, for the British Empire. And so what you have in Malaysia is this very multicultural society that's very sensitive about itself. And you've got people from, in our master's class, we had people from Africa, we had people from the Middle East, we had the whole Muslim world was there. We had most of the East Asian world was there. So we had students from China, from South Asia, from uh, Palestine, from Iran, uh, from Africa. And then there was me. I was like the lone American guy. We had, we had a Korean guy there as well. Um, and so it was just a really fascinating place to study international relations and, and politics because everybody was coming at this these concepts from a different angle. And, and people would say things and I'm like, Man, I never thought of that. And there was a lot of man, you're crazy. But at the same time, there was a there was a lot more of man. I never really thought of things that way. Um, and so I, I I described the situation that way because it, it becomes important. So we had this girl in the class, uh, a Muslim lady, a Malay lady named um, I think I called her Delilah in the story. It's not a real name. Um, and uh, I had a meeting with a very senior official in the Ministry of Defense in the afternoon because I was doing some research for a paper I was writing and I asked some of the, the folks at the embassy to get me a meeting with this gentleman. And so I showed up in class wearing a suit because I had come straight from my meeting with this Undersecretary of Defense. Um, and at that point, Delilah, who was a little bit promiscuous, kind of, I guess it drew her attention. She came, she was flirting with me or whatever, and I just kind of ignored her. Well, what I came to learn about her uh, later was that she was very adept at um, having boyfriends that would help her do her homework. And so we had a group presentation that was due in the class. And it was just a function of we just didn't have enough time in the semester for everybody to do individual research presentations to the seminar of grad students. So we kind of teamed up. In groups of two or three and um that was a kind of a fascinating thing because everybody was there was a lot of plagiarism and you could see the different um different groups and, and where their you know the state of their education system was based on their group work you well, know can so we talk that, about that for a minute because you, you yeah, point you out in there that that there would there would get to points in the plagiarism that if someone didn't show up with their they're part of the article or they're whatever they plagiarized from the internet. He just skipped that part of the speech. All right. So in, in, in the U S system, and this is, there's a cultural aspect to this. If you're in a group of three students and you've got a task to work on together and one of the guys doesn't show up, what, what does he do? He, he, he's something happened. He's going to call you ahead of time. So look, sorry, something, Something happened, you know, I'll, I'll try to make it up to you, you know, 
I'll do the work tomorrow or I'll cram, you know, burn the midnight oil and I'll do my part and I'll get you, you know, it's suboptimal, but I'll try to, you know, get my part done. Well, in a lot of these cultures, it, it doesn't really work that way. So what, what I found oftentimes is, you know, some guy in the group would have something come up and it was usually a family related thing. Uh, and instead of calling and telling his group members, Hey, listen, we have to make adjustments to how we're going to accomplish the task here. They just wouldn't show up. They wouldn't call. You wouldn't know what happened. They wouldn't answer the phone. And it was like, instead of getting angry about it, the group would just sort of go, Oh, well, you know, guess he's not coming. <laughs> and, and for me as an American, that was frustrating as heck. Cause I was like, you know what, this guy has a responsibility to the group here and he's just kind of just kind of skipping out on it you don't do that right but in those cultures you kind of do and you sort of uh, the rest of the group is sort of expected to just pretend it didn't happen and not talk about it mm -hmm. and find another way to get to you know the objective somehow uh well when this would happen at the last minute you'd see these groups with two or three guys and one of them wouldn't show up and they'd be standing there with their presentation wondering where their buddy was. And since they plagiarized it from Wikipedia, in most cases, they would <laughs> they would start reading halfway through the article. They'd read Wikipedia. Their English wasn't that great in some cases. And and so, you know, their research abilities were kind of limited. All the coursework was in English uh, for lots of complex reasons. But um, it was it was sort of comical to see, you know, a group, a very nervous group of two or three uh, students stand there and start reading a Wikipedia article from like page three and, and pass that off as, as useful grad work. And it was, you know, for me, it was, it was comical and frustrating all at the same time. But anyway, that Delilah, whatever her name was, um, Delilah was in, in, in sort of an extreme case of that. So she showed up to do a presentation and I think it was a, a, a one person presentation that night. The classes were all at night. Um, because the strategic and defense studies program that we were in was designed to accommodate uh, working Malaysian professionals. So policemen and, and military officers specifically. So all the classes were at night to accommodate those guys. And so it's, um, you know, just to set the scene for you here, it's dark out. Um, we're in a mostly deserted university and it's certainly a deserted building. You know, that we were the only ones having class at seven o'clock at night and Delilah's up there giving her presentation. Well, it was pretty obvious to everybody sitting in the room that she was having some pretty extreme stress about it and wasn't, um, able to give her presentation. And so, uh, you know, we all kind of sat there patiently while she shuffled the papers and she sort of looked at the instructor who was at his desk kind of next to this podium that we'd set up. And then, you know, she'd look at us and she'd look at the papers and look at the instructor and it just kind of went like this in this awkward, really increasingly tense situation where this poor woman is now just sweating and her, her lips began to tremble and, and she was clearly not able to give her press. She hadn't done her homework. And I'm sitting there in the front row thinking to myself, like, we're wasting our time with this girl. She didn't do her homework. Good God. And um, what I found out later was that she had had all of her homework and her assignments up to this point done for her by um, one of her boyfriends. So this is where the flirting became kind of a, a, an operational thing for her. So she would 
she she would she was cultivating multiple boyfriends in order to get whatever she wanted in life. And in this case, it was a PhD student to do her homework. And then this guy had cut her off apparently the night before and didn't do her homework and broke up with her. So there she is in front of our class, you know, stressing out about how to give a presentation about, I don't know, the United Nations Security Council or something, you know, like that. And uh, she couldn't do it. And the stress just ramped up. And there, there we are sitting there in this class. And you can imagine it's hot. Well, how long are we talking? How long is she standing there looking at you and the instructor? Oh my gosh, man. It seemed like, it seemed like fucking forever, DJ. But it, it was probably five <laughs> minutes or so. I mean, if you have to get, imagine having stage fright for five minutes, you're standing in front yeah. of a group of your peers. It's got to be like an eternity. So she sat there for, I don't know how many minutes, you know, hemming and hawing about this thing and not saying a word. And finally, I think she just, something broke or she needed a way out or whatever. And there was a small window on the wall next to the podium. Again, it's dark out. So you can kind of see your reflection in the glass. And she gazes at this, at this window <laughs> and she she looks at it at a, and at a certain point she just dropped everything i mean papers went flying and she started clutching at her eyes and i mean like really gouging at her eyes and screaming <laughs> and she is i mean and i'm not kidding and she falls down on the like throws herself on the floor in front of all of us she's gouging at her eyes She's screaming in Malay, takut, takut, which means I'm terrified or I'm scared. And she's writhing on the floor. And I mean, this is like, this is hysteria. I've never, you know, I guess I've never seen anything like it, not in an adult human. And I was in the front row and I, I remember kicking my desk back because we were in those like desk chairs with the arm desk thing. And I was, I, I sat there like this with her writhing around at my feet, like, oh my God, what's going on here? And uh, the class was stunned, myself included. We were all just kind of like, what the hell? The instructor is sitting there. I think he actually ran out of the room at one point. But um, we were stunned. And the one who broke the, the, the sort of tension or, 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 or made movement happen was one of our classmates named Mahmoud. Now, Mahmoud is an interesting character. Mahmoud was the brother-in-law or the cousin of a gentleman named Salam Fayyad who was the Palestinian prime minister at one point. I don't think he was at that time. Uh, but he's an important Palestinian politician. And Mahmoud had grown up as the relative of this important Palestinian gentleman. And he was, uh, he was tall, dark-skinned, good-looking guy, charismatic as all get out, great, you know, a, a natural kind of leader. People were drawn to him. Big old beard, you know, religious guy, uh, which in a Palestinian is a little strange. Um, but very muscular, you know, he had been a, a bodybuilding champion when he went to school in Egypt. I mean, just, this, I'm painting the picture here because this, my mood was just this, gosh, if he was American, people would be like, yeah, Captain America, right? You know, right. follow me kind of guy. And Mahmoud jumps up and runs to the front of the class. And he, he declares, I have seen this. I saw this all the time in Egypt. The gin would the gin and and that's D J I N N and for for those of you who don't aren't familiar with that term it means a ghost or a genie. The gins would take people take over people's body in Egypt all the time. Don't worry, I know how to handle this. And he just immediately just dives into prayer. And he's standing in front of the room and he's 
he starts this this prayer over the writhing, still screaming, clutching her eyeball. I think she's doing damage. Delilah, yeah, I who's think, on the floor. I think at a point you wrote in there that she like was started like really getting at her face, like tearing yeah, no, it up. She, she was really into it. And uh, <laughs> you know, and so there's Mahmoud praying, and so and, and all the Malaysians um really kind of um there's a there's an affinity for the Palestinians in Malaysian society, particularly Malay society, which is the Muslim part of, of the Malaysian community. Um, and, you know, they, 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 they have a, they're put on a pedestal in a way because they fight the Israelis. And that's a simplistic way of looking at it, but that's a very much how a lot of Malaysians view the Palestinians. You know, they, they are out there taking one for the team for the Muslim world. Um, and so there was, a, there was a desire and a natural kind of followership associated with Mahmoud. Um, apart from his own personal charisma, charisma, you know, he had that as well. And so, I mean, the entire classroom of, of, or at least the, the Malay Muslims jumped up and joined him in prayer. And there I am with this (laughs) sitting in the front row still with this girl writhing at our feet, tearing her eyeballs out of her head. Um, most of my Muslim classmates deep in prayer I don't think it's and, well, no, you know, but I don't know the Arabic. So they're, you know, they're, they've got their hands like this and they're, they are, they're praying and they're, right. they're hoping to help, you know, Delilah with her issue. And <laughs> meanwhile, one of her, her boyfriends, who's actually her fiance, a young kid named Zul. Zul's terrified. He's running back and forth in the class, you know, going, what do I do? What do I do? And he'd stop and he would pray and then we'd run around like, you know, chicken with his head cut off. And finally I realized like something has to happen. We got to get her out of here. And I slapped the table and I said, Zul, get her out of here. And he looks at me and he said, right. I'll get her out of here. And he, he breaks through the crowd of praying, you know, classmates and he scoops his, his, his lover up in his arms. And he begins again, running back and forth, not really knowing what to do. And I slapped the table again and I said, Zul, that way. And I pointed at the door and he said, right. And he runs out the door with her as fast as he can go. So fast that he smacked her head on this door frame as he went out into the hallway. And you could hear her screaming all the way down the hallway as they exited the building. And then, you know, we kind of all sort of decompressed. And there was Mahmoud telling stories about jinns in Egypt. And uh, yeah, now that now that's all funny. There, you know, there has happening. to be a point during this where you're looking around going, what in the fuck did I get into? Yeah, well, you know, the, the teacher came back into the classroom, the, the professor, and he had run, he had left, literally left the room, just ran away when she started freaking out. Any and reason? he comes back in and he said, I don't actually know, other than, other than maybe he was scared. Uh, it, it was pretty intense, I got to say, DJ. I mean, she was really, uh, she was really possessed by whatever. And so... He comes back in the room and without any discussion whatsoever, just says, look, class is canceled. Go home. Get out of here. And I was like, ah, you know, come on. We can, we've got another, we could, we could continue. And he's like, no, get the fuck out. So we, we like left. And I, you know, I turned to some of my friends who I would drink beer with, the Korean and the Iranian guy. And, you know, one of the, one of the Malays, Hey guys, let's, let's go drink beer. And so we went, you know, we had some beer and we talked about it and laughed. Well, it happened again, you know, a week or so later, she came back for round two and tried to do it again and again got possessed by the devil 
Um, and her story was that she had been taken over by the devil because there was a portal to hell in the ladies' bathroom in this in this building that we were studying in. This is an important detail because it was a problem for the university. And what uh, I had a little bit of trouble kind of dealing with as an American was the university accommodated this nonsense. I mean, it was clear to me and probably everybody else in the room that Darina didn't do her homework, or Delilah. She didn't do her homework. You know, and I was like, what? You know, screw her, man. You know, fuck her. She didn't do her homework. And But the school was like, no, we are going to leave this building. There's a apparently a gateway to hell in the ladies' bathroom. So, and they didn't say that, but, you know, we're like, we're going to have class in this other building, you know, nearby. And so we had to go in this other building. And I was like, well, why the fuck are we indulging this bullshit so that, you know, she can try again and not get possessed by the devil during, you know, because she didn't do her homework. Um, but what I came to realize is that uh, the concern for the university was not that there was actually a portal to hell in the universe in the ladies bathroom but that um hysteria spreads and they have a word for it in malay it's called mangamuk running amok and um so when you open the paper in a malaysian newspaper just about once a week you're going to read a story about a group of students young people almost always malay women Mangamuk for some reason and they have to it, it spreads like a like a disease and so if they don't nip it in the bud they end up with entire uh they, they risk having the entire undergrad population hear about it and start running amok and having hysteria and boycotting classes in that building and you can imagine that the larger problem that they could have had and then you know that could spread to well <laughs> The University of Malaya has, you know, got a gateway to hell. Don't send your kids there to go to school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it was a real world problem for them. And it's something that took me a while to appreciate. Uh, but it was, you know, and it all started because this girl didn't do her homework and got cut off by her boyfriend. And so uh, understanding that cultural context was kind of important. Now, the funny, that sort of punchline to all of this stuff is uh, she was Muslim from a respectable family. Uh, but there's still very much an aspect of traditional religion in uh, Malay society in Malaysia. And so the family hired a BOMO, which is essentially a witch, witch doctor. Uh, and the BOMO, you know, they, it's traditional magic medicine or whatever, and they hired the BOMO to do a ceremony to, to get the demon out of Delilah. So they invited all of her friends um, and classmates and whatever. I got invited, I didn't go because I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. This girl's toxic. You know, I'm just staying clear. Um, but several of my classmates went. Zul was there, you know, her fiance. Well, um, he, he kind of has to be there. He's the fiance. He has to, he has to be there. But what uh, I started to figure out was that she actually had, by my count, three of her boyfriends in the room at the BOMO ceremony. And they kind of all realized it at that time. And so one of them, who was a friend of mine, um, and I had warned him to just stay away from her. Uh, he didn't take my advice. And he went to the BOMO ceremony and he was telling me, he's like, Lino, I think she's got several boyfriends. This guy was there and that guy was there. And you know, there was some, I could tell. And I was like, well, I told you, man. <laughs> I told you. But it was a really fascinating kind of thing. 
And um, all yeah. I think about I, is that uh, scene in Ghostbusters where uh, where she's floating above her bed, and he tells her, "Just mm-hmm. just stay here. I'll be right back." And they have to <laughs> they have to find Gozar and and all that. It, it it just seems insane to me. And and I I guess it's what you say about the cultural differences. Yep. If someone did that in the United States, you would yeah, be like, we'd all be like well, are you insane? Yeah. All the other yeah. students would be like, oh, what an idiot. Right. You know, didn't do her, didn't do her homework. She's, you know, she's full of shit. Convenient excuse. Nobody would take it seriously. No school would have to deal with closing off a building for a period of time until everybody forgot about it. But in Malaysia, it was a serious concern and not a frivolous one. I, I don't I'm not saying this to criticize the, the administration at the university. No, I, I think believe they you. actually. Yeah, I think they actually made some pretty smart moves in response to this. You should have told him, no, no, no. That portal to hell was in the toilet that I was just in. Uh, <laughs> that, well, that That's what seemed the funniest to me, that, that they picked the bathroom. I'm like, well, I mean, I guess that's a good a place as any to make a portal to hell so I, I suppose but you know i i made the point too like that we had a, a blind um gentleman in our class and i used to have to take him to the bathroom like i just helped him because he could couldn't navigate the stairs and all that stuff safely and so it was right next to the ladies room and i was like well come on now if there's a portal to hell in the ladies room you're telling me the devil didn't come out in the men's room too like come on <laughs> but yeah. making you know, making strict commonsensical scientific logic in that case is not really what was called for. What was yeah. called for was understanding the society, which is, you know, a certain segment of that community is susceptible to what they call hysteria. And it will shut down facilities that, and does so on a routine basis. I think that's the best story of the ones that you wrote that, that I, I enjoyed. That was my favorite one. Just... <laughs> like when you got to the point where they just started shutting down parts of the college, I'm like, I cannot believe this. This is to get out of a grade. Like, yep. I don't know. So in all of your work, uh, Lino, you have done consulting too. And that's the mm-hmm. last story I want to talk about tonight. Now, everybody knows Aruba is kind of a crazy place to be. We've had Natalie Holloway go there and disappear. Yep. We've had other Americans disappear. It's just kind of a, uh, if I could say like a, a Bermuda triangle there, mm. um, people go there, disappear. There's no leads on them. Uh, while I was researching this story, I saw that there's a recent one that just happened again, uh, of another person. Uh, you were called in to, uh, figure out what was going on. Now yours wasn't a disappearance. Yours was, um, someone that was over there. Uh, there was, a. a Drugs, alcohol involved, the police were involved, there was a, a police shooting involved. But from what I understood, it goes back to this person believing that they were actually drugged there to kind of start mm-hmm. off the story. Uh, and the basis behind that was this person was going to be drugged, maybe sold into human trafficking, uh, and you call it Operation Redbird. And so yep. I, I, I want to talk about this story because... You seem very, um, very heartfelt in this story. Uh, and there's a lot of 
it's very multifaceted, but if we can talk about it, can I want you to kind of set it up because I don't think I'll do it justice setting it up. Yeah. Um, we called it Redbird because Redbird was the code name that we gave to the victim um, that I was going over there to sort of uh, help. And uh, her name is Cody Shakir. And by all kind of measures, I've never met Cody in person, actually. Um, but by all measures, she's a, she was a, um, a really caring and conscientious and a good person, a good citizen, a good person. Um, and was down there enjoying a vacation in Aruba with a friend of hers and something bad happened. And, um, she got into, and she got into the, the trouble that you started to describe. Um, but before I tell the story about Cody, we kind of have to understand a little bit about the history of Aruba. Um, Aruba is an interesting place because it is, um, it is not entirely a sovereign country. So it is part of, um, it is a limited part of the kingdom of the Netherlands. And I, I've, I've not used the correct term there, but um, the kingdom of the Netherlands does the foreign policy for Aruba and administers the justice system, certain parts of the justice system, particularly the criminal justice aspects of it. Um, and so uh, Aruba had changed. It was originally a Spanish uh, settlement, and then it became part of the the uh, Netherlands Antilles and was uh, part of the Netherlands until 1986 when they decided to secede. But before that process was complete, they said, okay, okay, we don't actually want to secede completely. You know, please continue to run our foreign and defense policy and our, our judicial system and whatever. But um, it's become, it's gone through a few phases in its history. So it was very, there was a gold rush that never panned out. There was um, a refinery that opened and subsequently closed. Um, but then tourism became the main attraction uh, in the late 20th century. And uh, as a result, so the, the United States doesn't have a presence in Aruba. There's no embassy, no consulate. In fact, uh, the consular affairs of the United States are handled from consulate in Curaçao, um, which has a similar status within the Kingdom of the Netherlands. Uh, and the embassy, I believe, is in Barbados. But anyway, um, so you, you start to... St start to see that working with the government in, in Aruba can be some somewhat bewildering if you're not prepared for that sort of thing. And one day in February of this year, uh, I want to say very late February, I got a call from a, uh, a trusted friend of mine um, named Mario. Mario is one of the principals at a company called Seven Arrows LLC. And Seven Arrows is a company that... Um, does a lot of uh, special risk investigations and risk consulting, mostly in Latin America, because the two principals, Joe and Mario, uh, have a lot of experience there. Both SF guys, uh, so I know them from the SF SF land, and um, you know I've been friends with Mario since we were uh, civilians. He was at EPA, I was at USAID, and, and we used to drink together because our offices were close. But anyway, um, we've become friends and, and business associates, and so. Got a call from Seven Arrows one day, and Mario said, "Hey, Lino, do you know anybody in Aruba?" And I said, "Well, you know, um, and I should back up, I, I guess, because I own a consultancy called Navizio Global. So the Combat Diver Foundation is not my only gig. Navizio Global is my for-profit arm, uh, and Navizio Global is really just a way to mobilize my resume and my contact list, which is extensive. So I know people all over the world." Um, 
and we, I can bring them to bear to solve problems for, for clients. We're not talking about gunslinging. We don't do that. We, by virtue of the assignments that I've had and the experiences I've had around the world, I know a lot of people with a lot of international savvy, former diplomats and, and military officers and people that people for whom a passport is a really a necessity and, 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 and know how to operate and influence in certain parts of the world. So uh, Mario called me and said, Hey, do you know anybody in Aruba? We've got a problem there and we don't, we don't know anyone. I said, well, I think I know how to get to somebody. And so um, I called a colleague of mine who was originally a client, but has become a mentor and a friend, a gentleman, a Canadian gentleman who plays at a very, very high level, um, a, a longtime political and international operator that we'll call Silverback. And I called Silverback and I said, hey, uh, his name's Paul. I said, hey, Paul, you know anybody in Aruba? He said, yeah, I, I, uh, I know a former prime minister from the Dutch Antilles that, you know, has, has joined the opposition. He's kind of, you know, out of work and he just does stuff. It's expensive, but, you know, he could help you. And uh, I said, well, you know, we might have to warm him up because we've got the situation. And the situation was Cody Shakir. So here's the story with Cody. So just to set all that up, here's the story with Cody. Cody was down there on a vacation. Young girl, 25 years old, um, again, by all measures, an upstanding citizen enjoying a vacation in Aruba with her, her best friend. And they, um, one night, met some local gentlemen on the beach, local kids, um, and they drank some beer and they, they smoked a joint or whatever. And um, at a certain point, they said, okay, we're, let's, we're hungry. We need to go eat. Can you, local guy, show us, you know, we want to eat sushi. And so the local guy got on his bike and the girls got in their car and he led them to a place where they could get the food they were looking for. And at some point, Cody, who was behind the wheel, perceived a threat. And there's some justification in that. You know, I actually went to the site and I read his statement and her statement and it's a, it's a pretty restrictive roadway and, you know, kind of the way he kind of blocked the path so that she would enter the parking garage that that was appropriate for that place might have seemed like he was trying to block her her path and if and according to her statement some cars came up behind anyway so she's in this place where she feels restricted and constrained and she's feeling funny she believes that this gentleman has put something in the either the alcohol they were drinking or the joint they were smoking um, and she freaks out and she runs. She manages to escape this constricted alleyway and, and went um, on a what can only be described as a rampage with her car. She was trying to escape. She was terrified. Um, and maybe, maybe under the influence of, of various drugs. We're, we're not sure about that. The toxicology report didn't reveal anything. But at a minimum, she had smoked some marijuana and had some, some beer. And um, according to her statement, she was looking for the airport as if she was going to get on a flight and go home, you know, <laughs> in the middle of the night. But she ran and navigation wasn't happening as she was trying to evade this person that she thought was still chasing her because there were cars behind her. Um, her friend demanded to be let out of the car. And, and uh, so she was dropped off at a certain point and Cody continued alone. 
And the long story short there is that she ended up traveling at a high rate of speed, recklessly, under the influence, across the island, and came back. At a certain point, the police got involved in, in, in a pursuit. Um, because you have this person putting other other motorists at danger. There had been complaints that she had hit other cars and even um, properties. So it was a dangerous situation. Uh, she wasn't responding to the instructions of the cops who got behind her uh, on the chase. And this ended up uh, with her arrest. And they actually had, at a certain point, um, used deadly force and they shot her. They shot her three times. Um, and so that's the story that I was told on my way to Aruba, uh, on a contract with seven arrows. So seven arrows hired me, uh, to go to Aruba to try to, to figure out what happened there and hopefully get, uh, some relief for the family. Now here's where I'll stop that part of the story and tell you about Cody's family. So, um, the only person in Aruba for Cody was her brother, Kali. Um, young guy, about 28, uh, but not, not an experienced individual, not in the international context. And um, the family has some money. They're car dealers, uh, used car dealers from the Philadelphia area, uh, but they're not rich. These aren't the kind of people that have you know, special risk insurance policies that could cover a Green Beret investigative team to go out there and kind of help out with the situation. Um, they, they just don't. So uh, the principal at Seven Arrows, Joe, um, you know, offered them a really good deal and said, listen, uh, we'll go down there. We'll send, you know, an expert down to kind of help with this situation. We'll do, we have a team that will do some intelligence analysis or information analysis to help understand the situation. We'll have our, our men on the ground working with all the stakeholders that are involved in this thing to help us understand the situation so that we can make decisions and hopefully get Cody out of jail. That was, that was the task we had. And so seven arrows called me because I had the connections and then they, um, I was also available. So I went forward, uh, to Aruba to do, to deal with it. Um, I didn't know what I was getting into. You know, before I left, I, I actually lost quite a bit of sleep that night because, you know, Cody had at a certain point believed or, or made a statement that she believed the cops were in on it, you know, that she was potentially in danger of being kidnapped by these uh, individuals and that she thought they were in cahoots with the cops uh, because she believed she saw, saw some of them talking to the cops that eventually joined the chase against her. There's no evidence for that, but that's what she believed. Um, so this is the information I had, and most of this was coming from her young and experienced brother, Khalid, who was, you know, in a hotel room spinning himself up. He didn't know what to do. Um, the family, the uncle, uh, the uncle Walid had actually gone to Aruba in the early days and hired a lawyer, uh, to help represent Cody, but that's all he did. Um, and he left Khalid there college stayed out of a sense of responsibility for his younger sister, uh, but didn't really know how to handle the situation. He, he wasn't paying the lawyer's bills. He didn't have a relationship with a lawyer. He didn't know how to deal with that situation. Um, and, but he was our only source of information about what was happening. Um, 
So we didn't know. We didn't know if we were going to be stepping on the agenda of an international kidnapping ring or some drug dealers or dirty cops. I, I had no idea what the threat situation was going to look like. So I took some measures to protect myself and to protect Khalid when I arrived, and, and none of those ended up being necessary. Um, but it was, um, it was prudent to do that. Um, and when I arrived, we had... Uh, a lot of invalid assumptions about the lawyer. He wasn't responsive to Khalid because Khalid wasn't paying his bills. The lawyer is actually representing Cody, not the family. Um, and so Khalid believed that he wasn't operating in the best interests of his sister. And that was the impression that he gave to us before I showed up on the ground. So this is a, the information environment we were dealing with. So my first order of business was to get there and to meet the lawyer and I believe to sort him out. And if you've, uh, well, he's, he's, a, he's an Aruban gentleman, but a culturally Dutch. If you've ever dealt with the Dutch, my experience with them is they, they know what they're doing. They value institutions and rules um, and they're very good about playing within those parameters. Um, and they are not very, um, they don't waste a lot of time on trying to be amiable. So when you show up in, in a business situation with a Dutch person, you have to prove yourself to them. That's been my experience when I was at NATO, um, you know, and working uh, in that context. And so when I met uh, Chris, who was the lawyer, that's what I encountered. And it's usually a situation where it doesn't go well the first time. But if you find a way to work with these, these folks, uh, they can be they can be fantastic and that was the case with chris i i'd like to go back for just a second Lino. Mm -hmm. when you said that you arrived on the ground and you cool. did some things because i thought this was pretty interesting you did some things to kind of secure you being there and letting people know who you were and probably that you should not be bothered um so can we go into that a little bit yeah again i didn't know if i was going to be stepping on somebody's agenda and particularly somebody dangerous. Like I didn't know what, if there were criminal elements involved in what happened to Cody, there were bad cops. I just had no idea. So one, I wanted to see if we had any surveillance. Um, and I, I took certain measures when I got to the airport and moved to the hotel um, with Khalid who picked me up um, to make sure that I could identify if we were being followed or surveilled. Um, I didn't detect anything. Now, that doesn't mean that we weren't one time, you know, they might, you, know, you might not notice them. But um, it was but interesting you, to me that you also had mm -hmm. dinner with someone, correct? Yeah. So I also called uh, through some contacts that I have with the Combat Diver Foundation. I called the uh, commander at the Marine Barracks down there, and he's probably not happy that I'm saying this on, on TV, but um, I invited him to dinner. And I, I actually made the mistake of telling them I wanted to discuss the case with them, which is not really, they wouldn't have been interested in that. And in, and in fact, they told me that. They said, look, that's an American problem. We don't want to deal with it. You know, we're, the Dutch Marines are there to protect the sovereignty of Aruba, but we don't get involved in what happens, and you know, especially not with Americans. Um, so I said, look, forget it, forget the case. I just want to have dinner with you as a combat diver, fellow combat diver. Let's just get together and, you know, I want to meet you. 
And um, my intent there was I wanted everybody to see me having dinner with the commander of the Dutch Marine Bear. You know, in the event that somebody dangerous wanted to to to, to thwart what I was doing, they would Absolutely. take place. Yeah. Uh, now that dinner ended up not happening, but also the threat was non-existent. Okay. Uh, and that's something that took me a day or two to to sort of come to terms with, because again, you know, I didn't know the situation I was walking into when I went down there, and I just had to be careful about it. Um, that said, my first order of business that night was to meet the lawyer. And again, our, our assumptions uh, going into that meeting were that he wasn't responsive, that he wasn't operating in the best interest of Cody, um, that he might have been on the, uh, just trying to, you know, shield money from the family. Um, now, what's interesting about that is Waleed, the uncle, and Khaldun, the father, were paying this, this lawyer, um, but wanted absolutely nothing to do with us. They wanted nothing to do with me or Seven Arrows. Um, well, and that, they really didn't want, yeah, yeah. They really didn't want anything to do with Khalid either. And uh, you know that was a source of frustration because we were trying to make decisions about how to approach the lawyer and the situation, and the guys paying the bills were not willing to talk to us. And and what Khalid explained to me, and what I came to understand was, you have to kind of go back to the history of Khaldun and Walid. The uncle and the father were they're Iraqis. And they came, they migrated to the United States at some point, I believe, around the time of the Iran-Iraq War from southern Iraq, which, if you recall, was um, the scene of a lot of, most of the fighting between the Iranians and the Iraqis in, in what is it, 79, 80? Um, it's bad, bad place to hang out in that, that period of time. Right. So these guys had been car salesmen in Iraq. And... By whatever mechanism, they migrated to the United States. And, you know, if you're a car salesman you, in Iraq, you're going to try to your hand at car sales in the United States. Why not? It makes sense. I got to think you it's going to be business. way more profitable here. I would think so. Um, it's certainly cleaner. Right. And so um, these guys set up shop and they were successful. Um, Khaldun owns a, you know, a business in Philly and, and Waleed and somewhere in the Chicago area. Um, and they're successful, you know, upper middle class folks, you know, they've, they've done well for themselves as immigrants, but, you know, um, they've taken also some of the, the, the cultural practices with them and they were not in any way willing to consider, um, the opinions or the advice of Khalid. Now, Khalid was one, the one that actually hired seven arrows. And there's a funny story about how that all came about. So a good friend of college from boyhood um, works for an, a, a large um, open source kind of intelligence firm that, that does government contracts for the United States government, mostly. They do corporate stuff too, but um, they do a lot of open source intelligence analysis for the U.S. Um, and so when this thing went down with Cody, college friend... Um, who's, you know, by nature of his work is pretty, a little bit more savvy about how things work. And he reached out to one of his work colleagues and said, you know, look, my, my friend Cody is in this bad situation in, in Aruba. What do I do? Well, the friend led them to a large security firm called uh, Allied Universal, which does a lot of special risk cases around the world. 
It's one of the major corporations that involves uh, gets involved in that sort of thing. They wouldn't touch it, probably because the Shakir family didn't have a policy with them, nor did they really have the resources to to deal with the situation. But they referred it to one of their known colleagues, and that was the principal at Seven Arrows, Joe. Um, they didn't have any contacts in Aruba, so Joe talked to Mario. Mario said, Lino knows everybody, so let's call Lino, and that's how I ended up in Aruba. Um, long story short of that, though, is that Khalid hired us. This is Cody's brother. Um, but Waleed and Khaldun, the uncle and the father, didn't approve of any decisions made by Khalid to bring other people in. And on top of that, Khaldun is estranged from his, his wife, Kim, and they're going through some hard times. And so um, they, what, what we walked into as, as uh, the Seven Arrows team, we walked into a situation where we had a, a, a divided family. So even the family couldn't decide how to deal with this situation. And um, what happens a lot with families in, under stress is they just start reaching out to anything that's anyone or anything that seems to offer hope. And so we were dealing with this rotating sort of cast of characters that were receiving money or had been friends or colleagues with Khalid and Waldoon. Khaldun and Waleed, excuse me. Um, a lawyer in Philly, a prosecutor in Guatemala, another lawyer, a competing lawyer in Aruba that they hired at a certain point. Um, but never at any point did they want to talk to the guy on the ground, me, uh, or the folks that were supporting me with that Seven Arrows who were, you know, working with Khalid and, and, and Kim, Cody's mother. It's it just, it was a very difficult situation. And I being the guy on the ground just, in, I stayed away from the family and I let the, 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 the gray beards from seven arrows handle that situation. And Mario actually went up and spent some time up there in New Jersey with the family um, to help them kind of absorb what I was doing and understand where we were going with all this and how we were going to help Cody. Uh, my efforts really focused on Chris, the Ruben lawyer and his ability to access bits of the government and other stakeholders in Aruba. So Chris, once he and I kind of got through that initial kind of let's, uh, I'm a Dutch guy and I'm going to fight with you kind of <laughs> interaction that we had. Um, he and I started very carefully, very, um, yeah, very carefully coordinating with each other for Cody's benefit. Now that turned into a very functional relationship and, and Chris and I have become sort of friends of a, of a kind uh, since then, have a lot of regard for him, and he's a good lawyer. He actually worked on the Natalie Holloway case. Um, but Chris got me access to uh, the owners of the car and their lawyers and insurance people. They got he got me access to the uh, Cody's car. We found the police car. We went and saw that, um, and I essentially conducted what a military person would recognize as a use of force investigation. Um, the cops got into this pursuit. They stopped Cody at multiple points during the pursuit and at, you know, multiple points they shot her. So there was, um, the long and short of it is their, um, their story didn't match each other and they didn't match the evidence on the ground that I was collecting. Um, and so 
while I don't, I didn't discover any evidence that they had criminal intent. In other words, they were not, as far as I could tell, operating as some sort of, in some sort of criminal capacity to, to exploit tourists or Cody in particular. Um, I do think that they could be criticized for their decisions on the use of force. So here's the point, and you and I kind of went back and forth talking today about this. Mm-hmm. Here's here's where I start to have problems with the story and stuff on the ground. Like you say that sure. their their stories don't match up. So mm-hmm. the the person that's in the car with her, what does she say about the whole thing? That's funny. Uh, she she refused to make any statements to the Arubans. She managed to to get out of the country before any of the police activity took place, but any of the investigative activity took place. So um, she was let out of the car in the middle of the night somewhere, a gas station, made her way back to the hotel, packed her shit and got the next thing smoking out of Aruba. So before the, the, the Aruban cops could investigate, could, could ask her any serious questions. I think she made a statement, which basically said, you know, these guys tried to stop us. Cody ran and I jumped out of the car. Um, she's back in the United States. Has and so any, in order to, to, has anybody talked to her here? My understanding is that the Aruban government through the Dutch, and this is where things get complicated. And we have to go back to the history of Aruba is through the Dutch. They have to request a law enforcement agency in the United States to get access to this other person. Uh, her name's Sarah. So it's a long roundabout process just to just to interview this person who jumped out of the car before the chase before the police even joined the chase. So there's not there's not a lot of information she's likely to be able to provide except for you know what prompted all of this to start with. Um, and it's actually a source of frustration for us and the family because it's like you claim to be Cody's friend and that the what you've done is basically abandoned her. And that was that was the attitude that 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 we have about her. And and that's, I, I feel almost like that's the piece of the puzzle that needs to be put in there because I, she's the only one other than Cody that can say what happened. Because if you look at it from an outsider's point of view, you're just looking in on it. You have to understand that there's parts of it that just seem, I don't know if the word's crazy, but there's, there's parts of the story that just don't make sense. No matter how hard you try and put those puzzle pieces together, yeah. they don't come together. I've had that conversation with Chris, the lawyer, quite a bit. We're trying to determine, you know, why did Cody run? Why did she exactly. you know, embark on this thing to start with? Because they had been socializing with this kid. Um, and there was another man at a certain point that, that had come into the picture, but he wasn't directly involved in in her decision to run. So we said, you know, why, why did she have this perception that she was being threatened that caused her to take off in her car, dump her girlfriend and God knows where, and then run to the point where she, you know, she got shot by the cops three times. Um, that that's an open question. And, and, you know, we know that she had had some alcohol. We know that she had had some marijuana. She claims she she believes that she had been drugged in some other way by these gentlemen. I can't find anything in her statement or the, the construction of the events, his statement, because they, they took a statement from the kid. Um, 
I couldn't find at any point where it made sense that he would have been able to do that. I mean, so you no, said he's on a bike, right? Yeah, he was on a bike, a motorcycle. Yeah. Yeah. A scooter. Yeah. And, and so that's where they have been I, smoking at the beach. And right. then, you know, right. Yeah. My whole thing is that, and I get it where it could be frustrating where you're, you're trying to deal with different um, levels of force, uh, different force continuums, uh, different government entities and how you connect with those. There's just parts of the story. And I told you this when we were talking that, that I'm looking at it and, and it just, I feel like everywhere that could, that could help that person has gone away, won't make a statement uh, or, yeah. or that, that puzzle piece doesn't fit in there. Here's where, here's where I think our efforts really, um, really won the day, DJ, is that, so on, after, um, you know, I was with Khalid for approximately a week before he finally said, I have to get, I have to go back to my life. And he left me there alone for a few days, which was kind of a relief because the family's emotional. Right. Uh, they see conspiracies behind every, every bush. And, and I wasn't seeing the evidence for a lot of that, frankly. Um, what I was seeing was potentially a, um, under pressure, questionable decision about the use of force. But I wasn't seeing a criminal conspiracy. Um, well, and that's what you were hired for, was to to look at the use of force. Yeah. Yeah. And um, So I, I, was, I was finally, I had some time by myself to go. And I, what I did is I retraced the steps of Cody's flight um, from the initial point where she, she started running to the point where she was actually arrested. And as I mentioned, she had traveled all the way to the southeast corner right. of the island, the extreme of the island, and, and started to come back. And about halfway back, she was finally uh, finally arrested. But she'd been stopped a couple of times along the way. And in fact, uh, shot a couple of times along the way. So she, was, she continued to flee after being shot. Um, where was I going with that? So... Um, where we really won the day was I, I went and talked to people along that route. I said, Hey, listen, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was a gal that, you know, was running from the cops and she got shot. You would have heard the shots from here. You know, were you around? I started interviewing folks. And in particular, there was a point where, um, where, she, where she was finally arrested was in front of a house on a, on an intersection on this main road nice house in a, in a decent neighborhood. And, uh, I decided to go and talk to the, the people that lived there. And at first they were a little standoffish, uh, at least the gentleman was, but, um, as I was walking away from the house, the lady came out and said, listen, uh, can we talk? I saw the whole thing. She said, I saw the whole thing. He shot her down there and he shot her again here. And, um, you know, they, she was quite upset about the way the cops treated uh, Cody. Now, that's neither here nor there because she only saw the end of this, this trail. But what was apparent to me was um, with the evidence that I was able to collect, I could tell very definitively what had happened and where that car had gone. And, and what was interesting about it was she had lost the, the right front tire on the car. Which and leaves. so... <laughs> She left a trail right. of exactly where she, she traveled, and it, it, um, it invalidated the 
story told by the cops about how, where, and why they, they uh, dropped the hammer on her. Now, we could make an argument, and I, I'll spare you the details, but we could make an argument that, you know, the cop was under pressure, there was confusion, there was fear, um, and, and I'm sympathetic to that, but uh, they charged her with attempted manslaughter. And it's not apparent to me, based on all of that, that she tried to kill these cops with her car. And so um, that's the investigation that I conducted. We found the witnesses that were able to, to basically, um, you know, corroborate my investigation. And within a couple of weeks of me leaving Aruba, uh, the prosecutor saw it the same way and actually let her go home. So... There's one more thing that I want to talk about at the end of this, when it all comes in front of this house, the arrest ends. Uh, Cody is still very combative. Um, yeah. As it's over. So here's what I'm trying to understand. If the manslaughter thing wasn't, wasn't uh, proven or anything like that, what you were there to do. I, mm -hmm. I'm not, I, this is one of those puzzle pieces again, that doesn't make sense to me. If she's just out there, just trying to get away, this is all ended. Everything has been going on. She's still combative. Yeah. Any reason why does she say why, or did she say? I mean, um, it just it she doesn't didn't, she make didn't sense. Specifically, she didn't specifically say, but um, she was terrified. She believed the cops were trying to kill her, um, and at that point, she'd been shot three times, and so there was a little bit of possibly justification for her attitude. Um, but yeah, she resisted. You know, she, you can see her uh, still fighting. She's quite combative at the end there. And, and there's a video um, that was on the news uh, with that. And so my thoughts are this this girl has. Um, it's hard to explain how you can be shot three times. Her injuries were quite significant, by the way. Um, uh, yeah. I I, I, yeah, I think I wrote them down. Uh... Yeah, I was. Yeah, it, she was shot. Okay, so she was shot through the shoulder. Right. The uh, right she, shoulder. She took one in the ear from behind. She took one through the, through the ear, which was not serious. It just went through the through this part of your ear. And then she was shot through the throat. But it missed it, everything. It, and, it went through and through, right? Yeah, it was kind of a miracle. So she, she took it around right here. It, it exited right there. Um, and it exited out the side of the car. Um, which, by the way, the cops never reported shooting her from the side of the vehicle, which is one of the things that we kind of focused on. And she actually testified that they shot her um, while they were moving. So they, they fired at her from a moving vehicle while they were uh, alongside her. Um, and then they shot her again the first time they stopped her uh, from the back. And this is where the officer claimed that she tried to run him over with her car. Um, he claimed to have been shooting at the front of the vehicle. Um, the evidence shows that that's almost certainly impossible. That he shot her from the back. All the bullets went from the back. Um, and then they uh, arrested her at a, at a third location um, where he shot her. He shot her again at the third location. And so it was interesting to me to kind of wrap this whole story up. It was interesting to me that you told me, you know, it's kind of, it's down to, um, you don't think there was criminal intent on the cops part. You don't believe that there was manslaughter on her part. 
there's going to be maybe administrative duties in one, uh, maybe smaller criminal uh, criminal prosecution on the other. And this is all just going to kind of wrap up and Aruba is going to be a place that you just take vacation at still. Yeah, look, the Arubans are very sensitive to um, tourists having trouble there, this kind of trouble. Um, and, and that's bad for Aruba. Tourism is our major industry, especially from the United States. And, um, you know, after the Natalie Holloway case, it's going to be a very sensitive issue when a girl, especially a good girl like Cody, gets in that kind of trouble in Aruba. Um, I think it's going to be very hard for, um, for Cody to avoid all the charges completely. But the, the attempted manslaughter charge against her is not sustainable. And my investigation, I think, made that made that unsustainable. Um, certainly, the information that we leaked to the press, and I did some analysis and drew, drew some diagrams that ended up in the Rubin Press, put a lot of pressure on the police to clean their story up. Um, and I don't say clean their story up because they were trying to be false about it. I just think they were being, they were, it's a complex situation, adrenaline, you, you know, nighttime fear you, you add all those things up and stories aren't clean um i've seen this we've seen this time and time again in the military right um but our, my investigation forced them to clean that up and it there it made the attempted manslaughter charge pretty much unsustainable so I, i'm almost certain she's going to get off the hook for that um any charges that do stick and that she is eventually convicted for if, if that happens I don't think Aruba wants to see a good American citizen go to jail. Um, not for this sort of thing. I, I, and so I, I, I very strongly suspect they're going to say, okay, listen, you're not guilty of attempted manslaughter. You might be guilty of some of these lesser charges. You've already spent a month and a half in, in our jail system. Go home, stay home, you know, discipline the officer for potentially, you know, being a little trigger happy here. Um, Cause you could make that argument um, in a Ruben law. They, they will, <laughs> they will trail drunk drivers for days before they use force, literally days. Um, and it, we, you know, the lawyer, Chris, it, it gave me a very clear example of that. And he said, he doesn't understand why they decided to use deadly force on Cody in that situation. When, and in I, other situations. And I think that's my won. big, that's where that hole is for me in the story. That's where yeah. it, it doesn't make sense to me. But uh, I, I think, like I was saying, the, the, the interesting part is that, that this will be just another story from Aruba. And, and it's, you know, amazing that you got to go down there, see that, make these, uh, you know, help out this investigation. Um it just kind of goes into your whole career. It's always been kind of unconventional. Everything you've done yeah. in the military has been kind of unconventional. You weren't supposed to be at first group, but you got the first group. Uh, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like you got done with yeah. the infantry and you're like, hey, I'll go special forces. You go special forces. Uh, you get out, well, not get out, but you go to do your masters and then you come back to the teams and, yep. and you know, it just kind of is unconventional in everything you've done. The Combat Diver Foundation is a great organization. So what I want to do to kind of wrap this up, I want you to give your final where people can find you, how they can help out, and um, just 
what they can do to kind of move this situation forward. Because I think this is, especially this deep dive 2021 has a great cause behind it. And I want people to help out as much as I can. I, I want to, if I could just take one minute to, to wrap up on the Cody, uh, Shakir case. Absolutely. Um, and this is sort of an unfortunate kind of thing. So, um, again, a very tense family dynamic there. Um, Waleed and Khaldun decided they weren't interested in what I was doing or what Seven Arrows was doing to help the situation. Um, and they hired a gentleman called Ted Simon. Ted is a very well-renowned international lawyer based in Philly who's got a reputation for solving international problems because he worked on the Amanda Knox case. He's a high-profile guy, probably cost a lot of money. And they brought Ted Simon in um, literally the last couple of days that I was in Aruba not coordinating with us at all, um, coordinating with Chris to a certain degree, but it was not clear to me. I mean, I had done all the work. It was done. The hard, the heavy lifting had been done. What I had done, I knew that when I left Aruba that Cody Shakir was going to get out of jail because what I had done, I knew that. Um, and bringing in Ted Simon seemed like a, a, a ridiculous waste of money to me. Um, no, you know, with all due respect to him, um, we had, we had done what needed to be done. Now, he ended up organizing a letter-writing campaign, uh, character references on behalf of Cody, and I think she got something like 27 letters that they sent to the prosecutor in Aruba saying that she's a good girl and all this, and she is. Um, but, you know, that, that isn't worth $70,000 or whatever they're paying him. Um, and so it's a, it's a little bit frustrating to us, at the Seven Arrow side, because um, the Khalid and Kim side of the family stopped answering emails and didn't pay their bills. Um, and so there's a lot of pressure, we imagine, from Khaldun and Walid to uh, leave Seven Arrows in the lurch. And there's still an outstanding bill that's paid and now the lawsuit involved. And that's really unfortunate because on April 1st, Cody Shakir left Aruba um, by the orders of the prosecutor and is, is basically free in the United States now because of what we did. So, um, you know, Khaled, if you're watching this, pay your bills, man. Um, it's, you know, we got your, your sister out of jail. Um, yeah. So that's, that's the sort of punchline of that story. Um, now once again, over to unconventional though. Yeah, that's an yeah. unconventional end to a story. Hey, this is all done. Okay, good. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Yeah, they stopped answering <laughs> emails. And I, again, I stayed away from the family because, you know, I just wanted to focus on what was going on. And uh, I let Mario and Joe handle right. the family and whatnot. And um, uh, Mario and, and Joe are true professionals, and they've actually paid their contract to me. And I appreciate them for that because they're really taking it on the nose. You know, they, they got stiffed by a family whom they – they helped. Yeah. They did it. They did a fantastic job helping them out. Um, and in fact, accomplished a mission where nobody else could, um, including the $75,000 international lawyer. Um, but seven arrows did it. Right. And they haven't been paid. Well, um, that's what it. can we do to help the combat diver foundation, the deep dive 2021 yep. and just you in general, go to combatdiver.org. Um, you will see a link to Deep Dive 2021, which is our combat diver union and, and fundraiser. It's uh, on the 21st of August, 
2021, so 21-21, you, easy to remember. Come down to Pensacola, and if you can't make it, you can still bid on prizes, um, which helps us with fundraising. Uh, you could still run the 5K, which also helps us, and, and hopefully we'll be able to raise a little bit of awareness for um, service member and veteran mental health along the way. Um, yeah, that's it. Check us out. And um, hopefully, you know, I'll meet a bunch of you down at the uh, Floribama for a good party on the beach. Lino, it was uh, definitely an honor to meet you. We've been trying to get this in the works for quite a while. You had some travel going on. Um, and um, I'm so glad that we got to do this. You are a super interesting guy. And I'm so glad you did it. Guys, go help this guy out with Deep Dive 2021. It's a good cause. Combat Diver. It's one word. Combat Diver. Not plural just diver combatdiver.org go there you can help out with the charity you can help out with uh doing the virtual 5k you can help out with uh sponsoring things on there to just move this event forward last year it didn't really get to happen so this year they're trying to come back with a bang if you want more of me you can find me on twitter at doublespeak dj you can find me on facebook at the dtd podcast and you can find me on youtube at the dtd podcast where all these conversations are in video form that's going to be it for the show guys that's lino i'm dj this has been it we'll catch you on the next one see you later guys dj it was great man it was great to be here thank you thank you <laughs>